LifeWay Leadership Podcast Network. You're listening to the Five Leadership Questions Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Atkins, and today I'm here with Daniel M. Hello, hello. And a very special guest, which we always say very special. And we always make caveats like the one I'm making now. No, but, very special. but the organization that this individual is leads. Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. It's no, near it's, and dear to uh, us and the church and probably yeah. your church or at least some of the members of your church. Today we have Jimmy Miato, uh, who is the CEO, president, grand poobah of things at <laughs> Compassion International. Jimmy, do you have that on your desk, Grand, Grand Pooba? Yeah, yeah. yeah that, you just gave me ideas. Oh, good, good. Well, <laughs> here's the deal. You've heard me talk about Compassion before um, because uh, at McLean, we were very tied to Compassion because Compassion is tied to what? The local church. Yeah. They only go where the local church is. They do a very, very good job of connecting people to the local church. Um, some of the research that I've been most impressed by uh, that has come out is about the connection to the local church, um, leadership in the local church, leadership in the local community, which I'll get into at some point. So this is the standard five questions, but as of late, you guys know, we, we kind of deviated. Yeah, it's quite like the a five questions ish podcast. Yeah. And plus, <laughs> uh, Jimmy, you know, prior to coming to compassion was with the Willow Creek association for 20 years. Yeah. So, I didn't realize that. Jimmy, did you start the Willow Creek association? I joined the first year, but I did not start that. Okay. Um, John Pearson was the first president of the association, was on staff at the church, ran all their conferences, which started back in 1985. Wow. But it grew to the extent where in 92, they felt, wow, we need to create a, a separate, dedicated organization of serving, equipping uh, pastors that were coming to Willow Creek. So it started in 92. I was a sixth employee. And then wow. uh, at the end of 93, Bill asked if I would lead it. And then I... I did that for a little over 20 years. That's wow. awesome. That's awesome. Now, on a personal note, uh, Jimmy, this is a, a fun little quick story. But when I was dating my wife, I oh. uh, for her birthday present this one year, we, you know, I was like, hey, let's, I, I, you know, I don't, let's sponsor. I was going to say bye. I was like, no, let's sponsor <laughs> a Daniel. No, <laughs> let's sponsor a child. So that was what 15 years ago, and um, you know, we had done that and, and sponsored other kids and had been really cultivating our kids in that and having them write letters and all that. And, and it was great. It was such a part of our family, but it didn't hit home. Like it, like it didn't really emotionally hit home until our, uh, the, the girl that we had sponsored Jacqueline graduated from the program. Wow. And then we got the final letter. what, What was it about that, that, that hit home? So we had been cultivating this relationship with, I mean, we remember the the picture, like the picture of her when she was eight years old or seven years old with her hands on her hips, like, you know, so much attitude reminding me of Christina. <laughs> and when she graduated and we got that letter, you know, that final letter from her in great penmanship, right? Because the first few years she didn't even want to write. Uh, one of the teachers wrote for, for her and great penmanship and her talking about the impact it's had on her life and how she's studying tourism, hotel tourism in college. And just, it, I don't this know. It was Ecuador. just, yeah, it was in Ecuador. It was just, there's I, so much about I know that. This, I know this story. There's so much I about it. the same question <laughs> and I've already gotten the story <laughs> as well. It, and, but and if I could ask like, what, what, what was the impact that you saw on your children in that journey? 
you know, so, so they were a little, because we had, my eldest is nine and a half. And, and so we had always sponsored Jacqueline for their entire life. And, and it had been kind of, they had helped, they would help out a little bit here and there, but really we were the ones that were writing. Uh, but once she graduated and we told the children, Hey, we can't write to her anymore. And they were crying. They were sad uh, because the relationship that had developed, we were like, okay, why don't we do this? Let's sponsor new children, both, you know, very similar age to you, both in the Philippines, uh, so that you can communicate in English with one another and you, y'all can, can choose and let's pray about this. And so it's, it was so neat to just have that as a regular part of our family and prayer. And yeah, so. Sure. Oh man, that's so great to hear. And, and, and that's actually similar to my story with sponsorship. I, I we were sponsoring children through compassion long before I came to compassion to work. And it was, it was transformative for my three kids. We picked children that had their same names. Oh, so awesome. my Elizabeth sponsored Elizabeth in Guatemala. Hmm. My David sponsored David in Guatemala and my Esther Estrellita in, in Guatemala. And so they grew up with these kids because I wanted it. And my wife wanted it to be a spiritual discipline that every time my David said, dear David, he'd be reminded that maybe the roles could have been reversed. Oh. And, and, that, and, and we wanted them to grow up with a very regular practice of being in relationship with someone very similar to them in age and in the same name and, and to live, to learn what it was like to live beyond yourself. And because we were actually worried about raising our kids in a very well-resourced country of the United States. And that's why we did that. We mm. wanted them to grow up in relationship with someone else in very different circumstances. So that's good. Incredible. Hey, before we go forward, I just want everybody that's listening to know in the past, we have had compassion as a sponsor, not of the podcast, but of our events. This no. you may think yeah. sounds like a sponsor. No, 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 no. Not this is not at all related to any this of that. This is another one of those things <laughs> where uh, Jimmy followed me on Twitter like two or three months ago and I quickly DM'd him. And said, would love to have you on the podcast. So this is not, I just, we sound really passionate about compassion. It's legit, like, and per, we are. Yeah, yeah, no, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Just, just wanted to put that out there yeah. before well, we ask. I mean, think about it. We've question. probably given more to Compassion than they've sponsored any of our stuff. <laughs> <laughs> all the child oh, sponsorships. So. <laughs> anyway. Okay. Yeah. Moving forward. Okay. Um, I'm going to, I'll go ahead and, and ask our first question. And I do want, uh, I do want Jimmy for you to, as you answer these questions, you know, we're going to probably breeze in and out of different roles that you've had um, in leadership over the years uh, for sure. Um, so don't, you know, contextualize yourself to one spot. I do want to, I do want to add that caveat for you, but this one is about the present, uh, or the recent past. And that is, who are you learning from these days? Yeah, there's, there's actually three, uh, leaders that I know are dear friends, good friends, authors, and, uh, they've been speaking into my life and, uh, it's very relevant to where I am and to where my leadership is inside of compassion. Those three individuals are Andy Crouch, John Orper. And Ruth Haley Barton, hmm. and particularly around Andy Crouch, uh, he wrote a book called "Strong and Weak." Oh yeah, and I love that book. It's a simple book. If you had a flight from East Coast to West Coast, you can take care of it in that flight. But it's profound, uh, especially for leaders. And he talks about uh, how the the 
the path for flourishing for leaders is in fact the path of living, uh, leaning into your weakness and leaning into your strength, both of them. Hmm. There's something about strength and there's something about weakness. There's something about authority and there's something about vulnerability. And, and leaders, when you're strong in authority, but you're low on vulnerability or weakness, you have uh, a great temptation of, of um, letting power win the day in inappropriate ways. Hmm. And that's not life-giving to the leader and not life-giving to the people around that leader. Uh, but, you know, if you're, you're high on weakness, but you never show any strength, then, uh, you know, you never fulfill callings either. Hmm. And, um, and, and you never grow your talents. You know, the Lord, what did he call the, the servant that buried their talent, didn't multiply, he called them wicked. So there's something about um, giving back to the Lord for sure. Um, so there's this balance of vulnerability and, um, uh, and authority. And what was interesting, the way he described uh, vulnerability was very... Um, eye-opening to me. It just gave me a different lens. And he said, in vulnerability, if you're, if you're actually not risking something, then it's really not vulnerability. Wow. You can be disclosing, even as a pastor or a leader, I can be disclosing. It may look like vulnerability and humility, but if I'm actually not risking something very real in being vulnerable, it's, Perhaps disclosure, but it is not vulnerability. Hmm. And that's the place of authenticity. And so when you combine that with authentic strength of, of, of living out and using your spiritual gifts as God gave them to you, that's the place of flourishing for leadership. So that was just profound at our leaders read it. It was just a, a tremendous, tremendous book. The next one, uh, John Orberg, he's been a, so a friend of mine for probably 20 years. Go ahead. So Jimmy, uh, just quickly before the John Ortberg um, book, which, which we'd love to hear about that, but I'm just curious, how are you, I mean, you've led at such high levels with the Willow Creek Association. I mean, it's, you know, I'm, I'm looking at your, your bio. I mean, it went from 2 million to $20 million. Membership grew from 860 churches to 7,000 churches. I mean, that's at a high level with that and also with compassion being such a global ministry. So, so how do you, I mean, there's a lot of strength there. <laughs> so how do you lead in vulnerability through vulnerability? How do you, how do you lead with the end uh, personally? Well, for me, it's being grounded. I, I have certain spiritual disciplines and it really does tie in with the next two, John Orberg and Ruth Daly Barton around spiritual disciplines. Uh, the Soul Keeping book by John Oberg and Pursuing God's Will Together, Ruth Haley Barton. Hmm. These are all really about understanding my soul. And, and I've found in leadership that over the long haul, your heart can either become uh, hard like a rock or cynical or stay soft. Hmm. And I, I, if I can do leadership with a soft heart, I won't do leadership at all. I, I wow. So... I have to be incredibly intentional because so many things that come with my position can lead me to have one of the two other hearts. And often I find that leaders, uh, you know, we, oh, we're under a lot of stress, a lot of expectations, a lot of weight. And I find that, you know, we often blame stress for the problem when in fact, for me anyway, when I'm in trouble, when I start heading in trouble, it's because my, not because of my stress level, but because of my incompetent recovery strategies mm -hmm. from stress. And so there, there are disciplines in my life 
that uh, I, I live in so that I can protect a soft, authentic, genuine heart. And, and I believe to the core of my being uh, with deep conviction that the person that I am becoming is in fact the most significant contribution to the kingdom movement of thy will be done on earth like it is in heaven, that kingdom that Jesus preached. My most significant contribution to the king, that kingdom movement is in fact the person I'm becoming, mm. not what I'm doing or what I'm achieving. Um, those are very different scorecards. Now, I'm not saying that it's not important to do things for Christ. He gives us gifts. He gives us callings. These are precious things. Um, it, it, Jesus had an um, unbelievable calling to save the entire, everybody, and to allow for salvation to be made available through what he did on the cross. So he, he, had, a, he, had, a, he had a mandate. He had a mission to accomplish on earth. But, and, and God gives us callings, and that's all very, very important. It's just not as important as the person I'm becoming in Christ. That's so good. What I do has to be a fruit of who I'm becoming. If not, I begin to pretend and I begin to cut corners on my soul and I begin to be less genuine, less authentic, and my heart starts heading towards cynicism and eventually becoming a hard heart. Mm. And I don't want that for me Mm. and for my loved ones around me as well. That's so easy. It's so easy to sacrifice those things on the. It's when I think about it, I'm thinking about fruit that remains. Hmm. You know, there's hmm. there's some of those things that look fruitful, but aren't over the course of time. Yeah. Well, and I, I you know, when I, um, uh, you know, when I think about the person I'm becoming, and I get a bad email or a bad phone call. You know, you know, I'll think about, all right, who's the very next person that I'm going to interact with and make sure they don't pay for that bad call they have nothing to do with uh, or bad email or interaction or whatever. Wow, that's, you know, that's incredible intentionality. <laughs> well, I mean, I find that I, I need it <laughs> yeah. you know, um, to be able to, to just um, be me a broken, fallen, precious child of God who is wanting to um, allow Christ to reflect himself in me and everything. And along the way, he's going to ask me to do some things and, and I'll, I'll want to do those things out of that kind of heart. Um, but it's so easy, especially I find in churches and in uh, cause-driven organizations like the, you know, when I'm in that, well, in Willow Creek Association was very much a cause-driven organization, wanting to see every church prevail and thrive. Um, so compelling. And here we're trying to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. The more compelling the mission of the organization, the more tempting it will be for leaders to cut corners on their soul in pursuit of that mission. And nothing um, can ever take the place of Jesus being in charge of the formation of my soul, not even ministry results. Hmm. What timely words, what timely words. Uh, so you said that was soul keeping by John Orberg and pursuing God's will together by Ruth Haley Barton. Exactly. The distinctive around Ruth Haley's work around pursuing God's will together. So much of the spiritual formation stuff is about individual formation, which is awesome. Yeah. Great stuff. Dallas Willard, Foster, all that super awesome. 
Uh, Ruth Haley does a lot of that as well, Ruth Haley Barton. But in this book, Pursuing God's Will Together, I was intrigued by that book because it's talking about how does a team discern God's will together? Hmm. How does a board, how does a, a leadership team come together with different wills represented, free wills represented around that table? How does that group of people discern God's will together for them? What are the disciplines that an individual needs to engage in? But what are the disciplines that the team or the board needs to engage to be able to develop the competency of actually listening to God as a group? It was a fascinating book. And I took our board, uh, we invited her in and she took our board through, uh, uh, we did a two-day retreat on on this material. And it's actually going to affect our board meetings in real interesting and tangible ways for us to intentionally not be driven by Robert's rules of order all the time, but in fact, intentionally invite God into um, the, the entire meeting and the preparation of it. And even in the meeting itself, leveraging disciplines of solitude or silence or uh, a fixed hour prayer or a discipline of uh, the prayer of indifference to anything but the will of God. Hold your opinion strongly, passionately, for sure, but hold it loosely to the will of God and live in that tension of both of those so that ultimately we're not doing things by human effort, but in fact, we're allowing those gifts to be in the context of God's will for us. Okay. So I know we're still on the first question, but I, I have, (laughs) (laughs) I told you it was five ish questions. Um, so Jimmy, I, I, okay. I'm, I'm really curious about this, especially because you're taking Ruth Haley Barton's work and, and, you know, implementing it into your board meeting. So I'm very familiar with her work. I love, I, I mean, I've bought hundreds of her strengthening the soul of your leadership book and given it away. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with what she proposes. So I'm, I'm just curious. Practically speaking, right? Practically speaking, especially in a faith-based organization and also within a church setting, a lot of times within board meetings or staff meetings, prayer is this cursory, let's just get it out of the way and get to the business. Yep. How, yeah, let's so, get to the real stuff. Yeah. So, so how do you, how, what does that look like as your, what does that board meeting look like? Because in my mind, I'm like, okay, if you're leading kind of the way Ruth Haley Barton is leading, is there really much business going on? Is there just a lot of contemplation and prayer and yeah. So I'm just, and how, and how much are people bringing to the, to the, to the table, you know, having all, you know, sat under the word of God and, and in his presence before coming. So I'm just curious to see how that works out for y'all. No, oh, it's awesome. So I've tried to do some of these high level things that are going to adjust in the future. So maybe we'll do another podcast yeah. here and tell you how it's going. But so here's some adjustments that, that we're thinking about doing. So everybody gets in and we tend to have an informal dinner the night before, but there's no really, there's no, it's in a restaurant typically or at the hotel and there's no real intentionality around that time. And so we said, why don't we repurpose that time? And let's have a dinner. Let's do it in the offices of compassion, not a restaurant where it's hard to, you know, really uh, engage with each other. And, um, uh, and, and let's have a dinner, but let's talk about how we're doing. How's our soul? Hmm. What's the state of your soul? And to be able to make connections at that level before the business gets started, so to speak, the next day. But even before that, in the in the materials that we sent, that we sent, you know, two, three weeks ahead of time, in the past, it's pretty much all cognitive preparation. Read this stuff, you know, get up to speed on this or that and what we're wanting to do at this particular board meeting. And that's a lot of work uh, of preparation. But 
uh, we said, why don't we add a little intentionality about preparing your soul for the meeting hmm. um, and, and ask you to prepare yourself for that meeting, maybe some, some time of prayer leading up to it where we encourage you to pray for the matters we're going to be talking about, maybe some silent solitude if there's a really big decision like expansion, expansion into this country or that country, big decision, high stakes, uh, prepare ahead of time, not just cognitively, but prepare your soul your spirit That's to good. be open and willing to listen to God and, and to have some intentionality about that leading up to it, come to the dinner, let's uh, build community. Where are we? Uh, where's our soul? Then the next morning we can start out and, and uh, we actually have a pastor, a position we created this last year. So there's one of our board members who is a pastor, but is also taking on the responsibility to be the board hmm. pastor. So this individual might lead us at the beginning through um a prayer, um, but there's intentionality around it. Maybe some solitude, maybe uh, and and a prayer, some scripture, and just bring a little more rigor, intentionality. Doesn't take a whole lot more time. Yeah. You know, you might do the perfunctory prayer last thirty seconds. This might take just a few more minutes than that, but it allows us to kind of center ourselves again, not just in in, in our mind, but in our in our heart and in our soul, in our spirit about what we're, we're going to talk about. Um, and then also to be very aware of the, the if we're going to pray, why don't we pray the prayer of indifference? And that's the prayer of indifference to anything but the will of God. Yeah, and specifically, good. invite God in. If we're going to pray, why don't we pray with intentionality? We really do want the will of God to occur. So why don't we actually just say that? Lord, we come with our strong opinions and passions, whatever but we want to be indifferent and hold those loosely before your will, you know, before your will, your will is the ultimate of, of what we're wanting. And, and to be able to all of us pray that prayer of indifference to anything but the will of God, that's not massively time consuming. You're right. Um, now, uh, if we have a really, really big decision, like we just had not too long ago about, you know, do we expand into other countries? If so, which country? So really, really big decision, high stakes. So it, if we were to do that again, moving into the future, we would probably say, why don't we have some, some time of, of silence and solitude? You know, maybe just 15 minutes or so where all of us, and we're actually going to assign different places in our, in our building where the board members can go to be alone for a little bit and uh, you know, just 15 minutes or so and just be in, a, in the presence of Christ, silent solitude around this matter of do we expand, if so, into which countries, uh, lives are at stake with that decision. We want to make it right. We want to, and by right, we want to do what God wants us to do. Hmm. And so, in, like, if you follow Robert's rules of order, you go, hey, um, let's have a motion. Let's have a second. Let's discuss. Wonderful. That's all great. But maybe if it's a massive decision like that, we say, you know what? We're going to take 15 minutes for all of us to go and be alone in some silence and solitude. And then we're going to come back, discuss a little bit further, and then vote. Again, these are these are small adjustments. They're not. It, it's wanting to uh, create multiple on ramps where we acknowledge and we submit ourselves to God's will being the point as we discover the strategic plan, as we dis discuss uh, as we discuss the strategic plan, as we discuss the budget and real hardcore dollar issues, yeah. if you will, all of that. But all of it in submission to 
to uh, the will of God. So again, it's not things that are going to take, oh, now we got to meet three days instead of two days. Um, but it's, it's real intentional, small things that we can do along the way to just keep, keep the focus on the main thing. And that's the will of God. That's wonderful, man. Thank you so much for giving us an inside look into that. Super practical, super practical. So Jimmy, uh, our second, well, not really our second question, but our official second question, question. <laughs> is, is what is the main point of emphasis for your leadership team right now? Yeah, right now it's integration. Okay. Um, doing things together. Uh, compassion for uh, is really the story of two lines. The first line, you know, we're 67 years old. And the, the first line is a line that took uh, 56 years. And that's how long it took to reach the first million children. Uh, the second line is the last 11 years. And that's how long it took to reach the second million children. Wow. So with that kind of incredible growth in these last 11 years, um, you're like doubling the ministry every few years. Hmm. So th- there is a lot of change that's come. And uh, in the last six years in particular, there was a change of, of CEO where, you know, my dear brother and friend and colleague, Wes Stafford, um, passed on the succession, the, the leadership baton to me about six years ago. And, and so in these six years, we've had uh, significant transitions. When I came in, I think we had, three leaders that had a combined 108 years of experience in compassion specific uh, uh, experience inside of compassion. So as you can imagine with that reality, there's been some changes and transitions and that's been all normal and it's, it's proper and good, but that's a lot of change, new people, new systems, a lot of growth and silos can grow in a ministry like that uh, pretty easily. So it's, it's, it takes an, an enormous amount of energy to fight against silos getting built inside a ministry that's this global hmm. and has this kind of scale uh, where we have, you know, 35 countries and uh, different languages, different laws, different geographies, uh, different cultures, different ethnicities. There's so much that can be used by uh, the evil one to divide us. And this ministry is too precious to yeah. be divided. And yeah. so there's real, right now, the theme is integration, yeah. integration planning, doing things together, destroying silos. Uh, so that's kind of where we're at. Yeah. Right so, now. so what are some of the nuts and bolts ways that y'all are uh, trying to destroy the silos? Well, I'll give you one example. Um, not for profits, all not for profits have this in common. And that is as opposed to for-profit organizations. In a for-profit organization, the person that provides the funds is in fact, in fact the person that's receiving the goods or services. In the not-for-profit world, the people that are providing the funds are in fact not the ones receiving the ministry, in our case, beneficiaries that can't afford to uh, uh, receive those services are receiving those ministry services, but other people are paying for it. So right there alone, you're kind of serving your children. That's our mission, but you're also needing to serve uh, those that are supporting the mission. And those are very different worlds, very different competencies uh, to serve a child and life transformation strategies with a local church, an indigenous local church in a poor community. That's very different than cultivating and serving and casting vision to and building relationship with Christ followers that want to be a part of resourcing mm-hmm. that vision. So just right there, even that, in addition to so many of the differences I mentioned before, 
that's like you're serving two different what we call are increasingly around here our neighbors like who's the neighbor god's called us to serve and he's calling us you know uh to serve the child and the church on the field and the front lines of poverty he's also calling us to serve those that are being called by christ uh to fund that vision so uh, when i said integrated planning before mm-hmm. uh to instead of do plans on in both silos separately how about we do those plans together? And then there's the support services side of the equation where we want to do this in the field. We want to do this in the well-resourced world, but it's got to be supported by systems and infrastructure. So instead of doing plans more in silos and then you throw your plan to the other group, uh, why don't we have integrated planning where we're all on the same side of the table together working on our plans as we're developing the plans versus each silo developing their plan and sharing it with the other groups. It's a different process. Yeah, that's good. Um, so it, for us, that, it's a very new skill for us. So we're, we're actually, this is our first year of significant integrated planning. Uh, so that's another one, you know, call me back in a year. How did it go? <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have to do that for sure. <laughs> Well, um, you've led in a, a number of different organizations in a number of different capacities and, and through various uh, stages of, of life and leadership and ministry. So now, with where you are again right now, what are, other than reading scripture, spending time with the Lord, what are one or two things that you have to do every day in order to prepare to lead and stay sharp? Man, that's a great question because it relates to the previous conversation around disciplines. And, you know, I have an athletic background, so the analogy of a training program uh, is very relevant to me. My training program was custom to me because uh, as an athlete, I had different strengths and weaknesses compared to other athletes. It's the same way in the spiritual in spiritual life. Um, and I, I have a you know, a whole set of little disciplines that I do that helps me enter into a life of training to become the kind of person that I want to become and the kind of person that through trying alone, I can't become. It's not just trying that will get me there. It's actually training and trying. And it's the training part that's great for me. It was the game changer for me. Hmm. Uh, So I start my day. Actually, I, I love the, in the Jewish tradition, the start of the day is actually the evening. Yeah. And for me, that made a big difference. Just to look at the start of my day is, in fact, rest. I'm starting my day with rest. And again, I mentioned earlier that, that often we blame too much uh, of our, our, the weight that we carry as leaders on stress when, in fact, it's really our incompetent recovery strategy. So mm-hmm. rest is really, really, really big for me. So I actually, in my mind, I start my day by going to sleep in the evening rest. And then when I come out of that, it's a time of solitude, silence, and scripture. And then I don't do meetings. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not hundred percent on this, but by and large, my schedule reflects that I don't do meetings with the first chunk of my day. Um, I have alone time at work. So I, when I wake up, it's alone time, silence, solitude, scripture, those disciplines. But when I get to work, I don't like starting meetings right off the bat. I, w- I want to ponder my days, center myself, work on private, sharpen the saw kinds of things um, in my leadership. It's, it's about um, 
me working on my development, what I need to do. So that's how I start my day. And then what kind of posture do I need to bring to this meeting or that meeting? I did it this morning as I was thinking through my day and, and this was a part of, you know, my day. I was going to, uh, I, I thought about it and, and prayed about it and tried to get my uh, thoughts around it together. Um, and then, uh, so that's how I like to start every day and, and real practically what that means, mm-hmm. I try to not have meetings before 10 AM. Okay. Uh, and again, I'm not hundred percent on that because it's not practical, but most of my days I start that way. I don't like having meetings. And then I tend to go into, um, meetings with people, one-on-ones and group meetings. And then I usually leave the end of my day to take care of a lot of the email volume, getting back to people, uh, um, I have less energy, uh, uh, and I always want to apply the, the things that require the most significant energy of me in terms of issues. I do that in the morning. I do that when I have the most amount of energy. So start the day with rest, um, which is the evening before, uh, solitude. And then, and then I do a, a midday break. Um, I typically do this over lunch. I don't like uh, having lunch meetings because I feel like I, I need to, and I like getting off site as well where I create space for a little bit of an emotional palate cleansing and, uh, um, hmm. and it just breaks up my day where I can, uh, think different thoughts. I, I love doing those lunches with my wife, uh, as often as I can try to have those lunches with, with her that puts me in a whole different mindset over lunch. So it's that midday break. And then at the end of the day, I like having a clear finish line hmm. where emotionally when I, when I, start leaving and walk into my car, I, I'm starting to switch gears that the day for work has ended. And now I emotionally want to uh, switch gears on my way home so I can show up at home, not with continuing to be in strategic planning or uh, problem solving mode as a leader when I, when I get in. Um, so that's just my daily rhythm that way. Now at the very end of the day, I, I do tend to, uh, do a quick check on email just to see if there's anything surprising that I might run into the next day. Um, so I, I will do that, but that's pretty much my rhythm there. And, uh, it's a daily rhythm. I got a, a, a weekly rhythm where at the end of the week, I kind of do a little uh, kind of pay off to celebrate a week and do some fun thing with my wife at the end of the week. Hmm. And then, uh, I got a quarterly rhythm where I'll, I'll take some extended time off, you know, a week or whatever. I couple it up with other holidays, uh, to take some time off. And then a yearly strategy where my rest and replenishment days go on the calendar first and then the work stuff. That's That's kind of my rhythm. That's wonderful. Yeah, it really does change things around when you think that the beginning of your day is rest rather than the end of your day. <laughs> yeah. So well, I'm just recovering from everything and I'm just trying to catch up. Yeah. It's just a different right. mindset. I love that. I love that. So just uh, super quickly before our next question. So what time do you go to bed? What time do you wake up? Just curious. What does that look like? Yep. I, I, I'm pretty, uh, again, aggressive with my rest strategies. So I really do shoot for eight hours. Okay. Um, so that means if, if I go to bed, if I can get to bed at 10, then six. Hmm. So I really drive now. Uh, that's another one like the no meetings in the morning. I'm not a hundred percent on it. Um, but, uh, I, you know, I, I, so eight is the goal and I hit that a lot. 
more often I hit seven yeah. hours. So, but it, it's kind of dependent on, and, and so I try to get that 10 or 11 and then wake up, you know, seven or eight hours. And, uh, uh, that rest is what gives me the physical margin as well to handle all the jet lag, you know, this front end of the year in the first few months, we're talking 12 trips. Wow. So that's a lot of trips. It's physically, um, it, it phys- physically takes a toll on you. And I visit other cultures, different bacteria. There's a real chance to, to, you know, get sick. Um, and so the physical side of, uh, you know, uh, preparing for this job is, is real important to me and stress is central. I'm, I'm sorry. Rest is, uh, well, stress is there, yeah. <laughs> but rest is central, uh, to that, to that strategy. That's wonderful. Well, before we get into our next question, let's just hear a quick word from one of our sponsors. One of the greatest predictors of a disciple's spiritual growth is regular Bible reading. That's why Lifeway created the Daily Discipleship Guide. This new resource in the Bible Studies for Life family contains content for a weekly group Bible study, but it also includes five daily devotions to reinforce what was learned in the group meeting. And that daily commitment to reading God's word helps create a habit that leads to discipleship. To download four free sessions of the Daily Discipleship Guide, visit BibleStudiesForLife.com slash DDG. That's BibleStudiesForLife.com slash DDG. Now back to the interview. All right, Jimmy. So when it comes to your home, I know you have three grown children, uh, two girls and a boy, and and you'll have been married since uh, 1986. So, so what does leadership in your home look like right now? That's great. Well, all three, you know, and I got, got to say it, two grandkids and one on the way. Oh, awesome. Uh, So from our oldest daughter, our second daughter's married and our, our son uh, is, is, is 26 and uh, he's dating a fabulous young lady. Uh, but they're all out of the house. So mm. we're in a very different season uh, than I was uh, earlier when they were, when, you know, we were raising them. And the, the biggest difference is I traveled way less back then. Mm. Um, I think uh, two years ago, I put 185,000 miles in in that year. And that's on the high side. I don't want it to be even in this stage. I don't want it to be that much, mm. but it's still a lot of travel. I didn't go anywhere near that because I wanted to be present with my kids yeah. and volunteered as a coach in the high school, coached my kids uh, through, served in children's ministry and uh, all along the way as well. So I, I wanted to be present. So family life, for me, the, 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 the words that come to my mind are um, Christ-likeness and mutual servanthood. Hmm. Um, that, that's the culture that I, I want, not only in the family, but in my marriage, um, mutual servanthood, Christ likeness, who gets to serve the other more, um, you know, and, and I know there's a lot of conversation all around in terms of theology of marriage and are you a complementarian or egalitarian or hierarchical or whatever. But I have found that when I look at elderly couples, the more Christ like they became, it almost didn't matter what position they were held on that Christ likeness became the central marital um, theology. Love that. And so for me, rather than trying to pick a label here or there, for me, the label is in fact Christ likeness. Christ likeness, you know, is the theology uh, for our marriage and, and family and mutual servanthood and, and making decisions from, from that standpoint. Um, 
So that, that's what hit me when you asked that question. That's what hit me the strongest. That's so good. That's so good. Um, now, do your children live close to you? You know, two of them do. They're in state. Um, and uh, one of them's about 70 minutes away. The other's about two and a half hours away. Yeah. Um, lives in Vail Valley. We live in Colorado Springs. And my other daughter lives in Arvada, right beside Denver. Yeah. And uh, my wife uh, uh, and that one daughter that lives in Arvada, 70 minutes away, they are the ones that have two kids and one on the way. And my wife gives them a day a week. So she'll give them a date night, um, goes up Sunday night, gives them a date night that, uh, you know, helps take care of the kids all day Monday. Mm. Um, and that's just been an amazing bonding of, uh, you know, their grandmother or nanny as they call her. And, uh, yeah. and these kids, it's just been amazing. So it's great to have them in state. My son works in Pennsylvania for Hershey. So it's like free chocolate for life for us. <laughs> So, that is amazing. That is awesome. Yeah, he just joined their brand new creative team. And so you might see the fruit of his labor in some ad somewhere around Reese's Pieces or Hershey bars or whatever. That's incredible. But he's having the, the time of his life there. That's awesome. So, so Jimmy, for our, uh, for our listeners who also have adult children, what advice would you give them on, on parenting adult children? Well, first of all, it never ends. Yeah. <laughs> so the parenting goes on for life. It's just different when, when you had more of a, um, you know, a more of an authority voice to you're doing this. You're not doing this. You're not putting your hand on the stove. You're not going to go to that party. You're not going to do this. So there was a lot of, you know, more authority, uh, in the growing up years as it needs to. Yeah. But, but over time that shifts, where, you know, we're speaking now words into our children, but with freedom. Uh, and I'll say this to my kids when I give my advice and say, you know, um, this is I'm giving you my best thoughts on this subject matter. So it's my best thoughts. But I want you to know that you can take it. You can leave it. Doesn't affect our relationship. I love you unconditionally. But I also want to give you my best. But I want you to know. If you don't take it, it won't change the dynamic of my relationship with you. I just mm. want you to know that. So giving them freedom to be themselves. I mean, the scripture, I love it, is train up a child in the way they should go. That's train them up. There's a season of training in the way they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart. You know, uh, they're up from that. Um, so at some point now they're making these decisions you used to make on their behalf. And sometimes they're decisions that you don't like and they're decisions that wouldn't be the decisions you would make, uh, whether it's uh, how to raise your children, where to live, what job to have, disciplines of the family, uh, where to go to church, stuff like, I mean, all these decisions that matter and are big, but uh, it's a different, it's a different role that you play as an adult, uh, as a parent to adult children. And for them to feel that, Freedom that Christ gives us, by the way, um, to pass that kind of unconditional love and, and space and room for them to discover their way um, and know they can count on you even when you they make decisions that they know and you know would not be what you would do in yeah. their place. That's wonderful. That's hard sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> A lot of times. Well, being that you have adult children, I'm, I'm sure you've kind of put yourself in this position 
before, but what would you tell your 20-year-old self about preparing to lead? And and just super quickly, Jimmy, how old were you when you went to the Olympic Games in Seoul when you competed? Oh, um, I was 25. Okay. All right. That feels like, a, oh my, another life ago. <laughs> Man. <laughs> you know how Facebook pops up. This happened many years ago. Yeah. Well, that popped um, up and I went, oh my goodness, it's been 30 years. You've got to be kidding well, me. Oh yeah, that is 30 years, yeah. Yeah, 31 now. Um, that was 88 in Seoul and it was actually, uh, I went through for an athletic experience, but I came home really with my calling to serve the church. It was much more profound and impact. Oh, that's uh, incredible. And I heard the story of the church transformation movement since the Korean war. Yeah. Uh, and that's where compassion was started, uh, in, in Korea, South yeah. Korea. And, uh, <laughs> So it's just been a nice connection that I've had with South Korea. My dad fought in the Korean War, and so there's been a beautiful family connection with South Korea for many years. Oh, that's that's amazing. Thank you for that. My dad was born during the Korean War, and oh. it, it was um, you know at the end of 1950. So he actually, as a new as a newborn, was on the back of his aunt's back as they were all going down from Seoul to Busan. Mm -hmm. Because it was not like there were trains or anything. They're all everyone was just walking down because North Korea was pushing down. So, yeah, was super yep. grateful for, um, yeah, what the U.S. military well, has done and, and helped my out. My dad was a 19 year old boy when he was sent to the Pusan perimeter when the when they were pushed all the way down to the end of the peninsula and he wow. joined. Uh, that's when he uh, was sent uh, to the Korean War to. Join those in the Pusan perimeter. And then, of course, they pushed it all the way up to yeah. the Puerto Rico. That's incredible. <laughs> mm. So when it comes to your 20-year-old self, um, what advice? If you're, if you're sitting across the, you know, ac across the table with the track and field athletic Jimmy Miata, <laughs> what would you say to yourself about preparing to lead? The first thing I would tell a 20 year old version of myself, knowing that leadership was going to be in, in, in my future. Uh, the first thing I would do was to tell that young man that was very achievement oriented. And there are a lot of reasons why um, one of them is that my parents in 61 years of marriage, they moved 41 times. I went to eight schools before I graduated high school, grew up in seven different countries, had been to six before I celebrated my first birthday. Hmm. Family was very adventuresome, but I was always a new kid on the block. And achievement was my way to be noticed. Achievement was my way to get accepted. And so I'd tell my young version of myself, get in touch with enough. What is enough achievement? Where are you getting your identity from? Is it Christ or is it an achievement? And what will serve you best over the long haul is, in fact, uh, finding your identity in Christ at the deepest of levels. And I was a believer at that time, but... I was very achievement oriented and um, uh, in ways that at times weren't healthy. So that's what I would say, get in touch with enough and then understand that the most important contribution that you'll make to the kingdom is not your achievements or what you accomplish, but will, it will in fact be the person that you are becoming in Christ. Get that. I mean, yeah. get that at the deepest level of your soul. Next thing I would say is, don't try to do life and leadership alone. It wasn't designed to be done alone. Life wasn't, nor leadership. So do life and leadership in community. I have this mantra in my mind that, that goes like this. Life and leadership 
uh, are hard. Life and leadership alone is impossible. Hmm. Do life and leadership in community. That means having fully disclosing friends in your life, fully disclosing friends that are so in tune with your dysfunction, <laughs> they could even joke about it. Mm. Um, and, and, and do life that way. Um, and so I've had relationships, I've had seasons in my life when I didn't have those relationships, seasons of my life that I do, and now would be one of those seasons. And I can't imagine doing what I'm doing and doing it as a soul alone. I'd die on the inside. I wouldn't make it. Um, so um, do life and leadership uh, in community. I remember we used to do mentoring sessions with pastors and the night before the mentoring session, we would ask them one question. How many of you have a single fully disclosing relationship in your life beyond your spouse? Um, and we would get about 70% and this is pastors now, 70% would say that they didn't have at least one authentic, fully disclosing relationship um, in their life. And mm -hmm. that's, so heartbreaking to me. So that would be the second thing that I, you know, um, you know, tell my younger self. And, and then um, the, the third thing would be um, begin to understand uh, spiritual disciplines at a, at a deeper level. I used to always think of them the way many of us do the classic ones, you know, prayer, silence, solitude, attending church, reading your Bible. Those are all amazing and awesome classical, you know, classic uh, spiritual disciplines. But for me, the definition of spiritual disciplines is any activity that I give to the Lord that helps do one of two things. One, stops the natural flow of sin in my life. Yeah. Or two, increases the supernatural flow of the fruit of the Spirit in my life. So what are the disciplines that I could engage in that help me stop the bad stuff and grow the good stuff? That's good. So based upon my weaknesses and strengths, I got a, a lot of series of, of, of disciplines that I engage in to help grow joy, love, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Get that stuff flowing. Get the, the, the people-pleasing and the power and control stuff and the image management stuff um, and all of that that's destructive. You know, um, you know, get disciplines in your life, young man. Hmm. that will help you grow the good stuff, stop the bad stuff, to enter into a life of training that will help you do what you cannot do through trying alone. Um, and, 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 you know, walk in community. So I think, I think that'd be my top three advice points for my younger self, because that's what I almost preach to myself daily now. That's awesome. So good. Well, okay, here's the deal. We did not have time to get into the Wydick study that I wanted to, but I do want to pull out a couple of things for people really quickly because we talked about, you know, it. the concern is more of who you're becoming and becoming more Christ-like. So, yeah, there's more worldly stats or not even worldly. They're just life stats of like, hey, children who are sponsored are 80% more likely to complete university than non-sponsored yep. children, but – You'll also see things like things that we care about, like 75% are more likely to become community leaders, uh, and then 70% are more likely to become church leaders than exactly. their non-sponsored peers. So there's a lot of that that I think that we understand as leaders that we can't lead people in a direction we're not going ourselves. And as we 
become more Christ-like, and we do that in connection to other people and in community with other people, they're naturally going to be brought along. And so one of the things that I, I think is just beautiful about what you guys do is working with local churches and directly with local churches, and then all the different ways that you instill these things into children through uh, the various programs that you do. So in many, many ways, um, you know, a lot of times we as leaders get to see things up close and personal uh, and the impact that we have in our lives. But we also need to think of the, the ways that we can have impact on others around the world and just love the way that you guys do that um, through individual people and allowing them to to being that bridge that helps them to do that. And then also, of course, of course, of course, through the local church, which is God's plan E A for bringing his local hope into the world. Amen to that. You captured it well, Todd. I mean, we really believe that that is the full gospel. Uh, it's not humanitarian aid. It's, uh, it's the full gospel of Jesus Christ that, of course, provides the cup of cold water and provides the clothes and provides the education and, and those kinds of things. But it is a part of discipleship for us, holistic discipleship, the, the strategy that Jesus invented, as you said, that is the A plan. And, and there's, you know, that's, there's no B plan. It is the A plan. That's the plan to redeem and restore this world for him and one child, one person at a time. That's, that's what we're about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Jimmy, for being on the podcast with us. Todd and Daniel, a real privilege to hang out with you guys a little bit and um, uh, blessings on you both and look forward to chatting again. All right. Thank you. Oh, that was so good. That was incredible. <laughs> the off-air stuff was really good, too. It was at the right end, after. Yeah. At the end, it's Daniel talking about how... Um, appreciative he was uh, of compassion from following him from Canada to Korea, back to Canada. And now here to the and States. And now here to the States. <laughs> yeah, man, Jimmy, I don't, you know, I, y'all probably heard the sincerity in his voice and it's because he's living it out, right? I mean, this, right. the guy's a real deal. And if you haven't checked out compassion, if you aren't doing anything with, doing anything with them in your church or even personally, we really do want to encourage you to check out compassion.com slash churches. And if you go there, Compassion Sunday will have just have, you know, just have happened uh, right. once this recording goes live. But there's a lot of resources, free resources there to see how your church can get involved with this because it's they're just such a wonderful ministry. And, and they're doing Word. based on the research, right? Based yes. on the research, that independent we, research uh, that came we, out. We'll put uh, we'll put the research. In yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So check it out. Thanks again for listening in and we'll catch you guys next time.